Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How did the Republican Party go from being dominated by Ronald Reagan in the 1980s to becoming the movement of Trump today? Today, we look at the tensions, the turmoil, and the strengths of the modern conservative movement. A new understanding of the right. Matthew Continetti. What we find when we look at the history of the American right is that the conservative elites and intellectuals are put into power by grassroots revolts. And yet they have a strained and sometimes antagonistic relationship with the same forces that put them into power. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, I would argue that since the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was president, Republicans have gone through far more wrenching changes than the Democrats. So is this struggle between elites and populists on the right a sign of vigor and vitality or decline and decay? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not sure I would, I would grant you that the Democrats have gone through anything less. Or let's check back in this space in about two years and, and we'll see. Okay. But um, in today's episode, we examine some of the lessons of the past and get a deeper understanding of the history of American conservatism. Matthew Continetti is our guest. He's the author of The Right, the Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Matthew is the Washington commentary columnist for Commentary Magazine, where I also write a column. And he's written for the National Review, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and just about everybody else that covers big ideas. He joins us from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., where he is a senior fellow. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, both Jim and I come from different sides of the political aisle. And as a liberal, whenever I hear the right speak about the left, I feel as if they're talking uh, about our side as if we're populated by cartoon characters and buffoons. Do you feel the same way when Democrats and liberals talk about Republicans or conservatives? Well, I think when we approach uh, both the left and the right, uh, we need to kind of disaggregate all the various actors and elements within these broad categories. So when we think American conservative, for example, we typically have an image of Ronald Reagan in our heads, or we think of Milton Friedman or William F. Buckley Jr. They are actually just 
a few characters among many hundreds. And in fact, the type of conservatism they represent uh, is not the only right wing politics or ideas on offer. And in fact, when you look at the broad hundred year history of the American right in the United States, the conservatism represented by Reagan may have been the exception, not the rule. So Matt, help me out here. I'm sort of moderate, conservative, libertarian-ish. All of my friends are liberal. Explain to them why mainstream liberals should still hope that we have a Republican Party that's at least functional, rather than what a lot of them think is they should just be eradicated and and we should salt the earth where they have walked. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that that's a kind of an anti-democratic impulse uh, on their part, right? If they believe in democracy, they should want competition between the parties uh, and they should recognize that um, the two parties often serve as correctives to one another. And that uh, that is one, I think, of the virtues of the two-party system. The right has been there to correct and to um, fix some of the um, consequences of the left's overreach. And I think that happened during the Reagan years. I think we saw that happen um, in the late 1960s. Uh, and I think we would need to see it again, uh, considering some of the problems facing our country today. One of my criticisms of the American right today is that it does not seem as interested in public policy as it ought to be, at least by my standard, and is much more concerned with um, just being angry at the way things are, and also being drawn to the most excessive and conspiratorial and apocalyptic views of the world. The American electorate do not like the extremes of either side. And when they find that one party uh, has been captured by its most extreme elements, they tend to rebel and they tend to reject that party. And I think we've seen that happen on both the uh, left and the Democratic Party and the right and the Republican Party. A big theme of our podcast is really kind of that process. It's it's stepping away from radicalism and extremism and trying to find common ground and maybe just common sense. In the book you write, the right has toggled between an elite-driven strategy in both content and constituencies and a populist strategy that meets normal people where they are and is driven by their ambitions, anxieties, and animosities. Explain that long-running dialectic. Uh Uh-oh, Richard's going to be mad. I use the word dialectic. That's too... We get a (laughs) little... Richard doesn't like when I get too philosophical. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's funny. In a conversation with Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist, he used that word dialectic, Jim, as well. So maybe there is some uh, bipartisan agreement, at least on that language. One of the big themes of my book is this um, competition and occasional cooperation between conservative intellectuals and Republican Party elites and grassroots conservatives and Republicans who tend to have a um, more uh, populist impulse that drives their politics, a rejection of elites, a antagonism toward authority and expert opinion that is long running. And what we find when we look at the history of the American right is that the conservative elites and intellectuals are put into power by grassroots revolts. And yet they have a strained and sometimes 
antagonistic relationship with the same forces that put them into power. And when this relationship became untenable in the last decade, um, the populist grassroots rejected the Republican establishment and the conservative elite and intellectuals in favor of um, what seems to be an emerging new elite. Is that exactly what happened with Donald Trump? Uh, in a commentary this week in the Wall Street Journal, Gerard Baker writes that Republican leaders in Congress remain shackled to Trump in private. They say they know that the 2020 election wasn't stolen, but they refuse to say it in public. Is this part of what's happening now? The populists are at center stage, the elites and intellectuals shunted off to the sidelines. I think that's true. Really, this animosity between the grassroots and the, the establishment, the elites and the populists, began much earlier than people think. I think the discontent began during George W. Bush's second term, uh, which began in January 05 and ended in January 2009. Over the, the issue of immigration in particular, Bush tried to um, liberalize immigration law to regularize the status of illegal immigrants and, um, and also introduce guest worker programs and expand legal immigration. And his two attempts to do that in his second term were rejected um, by the Republican House uh, and then Republicans in the House after they lost the Congress, but also by the conservative grassroots. And immigration, I think, became the issue that drove a wedge between the um, Washington establishment and the uh, populists throughout the country, a wedge that only grew wider with uh, discontent over the Iraq war. And then, of course, uh, Donald Trump's arrival on the scene in 2015, he basically uh, blew that <laughs> relationship apart um, between the populists and the uh, conservative intellectuals. Do you think if it hadn't been Trump, it would have been somebody else filling that populist void? Of course, there are always populist uh, tribunes who, who show up. They fade like, away. Like, say, Ross Perot as, in the 90s. Yes, or Pat Buchanan or, um, you know, even someone like Joe McCarthy in the 1950s. His uh, rise and fall was, you know, pretty rapid. Um, it lasted about four years. Trump is the exception, mainly because Trump, won the presidential election on a fluke, uh, on, on just a, a few uh, tens of thousands of votes in a few states gave him an electoral college victory. I think that was the key turn. I think if Trump had won the nomination, but then lost to Hillary Clinton, the Republican Party would look different today. Once you're president, you are elevated to uh, a remarkable degree of power and influence. You get to set the agenda, you define the choices, but perhaps most importantly, you set an example for your party and for the people aligned with you politically. And so you create, um, as my colleague uh, at Commentary, Noah Rothman, loves to say, a permission structure for people to exercise their thoughts and their, and their deeds in, in ways that they had not done before because it wasn't considered conservative or uh, polite right? Uh, Trump threw all that out. And, um, and he really did have an impact on the character of, the, of Republican candidates and elected officials that I actually didn't even see up until 2020. Um, it's really in 2020 when all of a sudden you have this 
group of politicians who constitute what I like to call the MAGA squad. That's kind of the doppelganger of the socialist squad that's in the Democratic Party. And so now we have two squads, the AOC squad, and we have the MTG, the Marjorie Taylor Greene MAGA squad on the right. But unlike the MAGA squad, the socialist squad is not in control of their party. I mean, something that surprises many moderates and liberals is how after January 6th, and given his frequently boorish personal behavior, that Trump is still such a towering figure in the Republican Party. I mean, why is that? Well, I would say a few things. The first is that looks can be deceiving. It is hard, actually, to measure Trump's impact. Now, I think we're speaking at the end of April. I think the month of May will go a long way to show us just how powerful Trump remains and in terms of being a kingmaker. Um, he's selected many, many candidates, made many endorsements in the Republican primaries this cycle, uh, many of the most important of which, Pennsylvania, Ohio, um, they happen in the month of May. And so we'll see, do his endorsements make or break candidates? I will tell you, in Georgia, for example, where he's been on a crusade against the incumbent Republican governor, Brian Kemp, the latest polls show that Trump's chosen candidate, David Perdue, the former senator, is not making inroads in that primary. But even in that race during the debate between Perdue and Kemp, uh, Kemp still struck very strong populist themes. Sure. Uh, well, so this gets to the point of how you integrate populism. There is a way to do it that doesn't go into saying that 2020 was not only a, a rigged election, but, you know, a fraudulent one and that Trump should be reinstated as president, just kind of lunatic ideas. Right. So that's the whole point of my book, is that there were moments where the GOP has a populist element, but that it's mediated and cha channeled and cabined into constructive directions. You may disagree with them if you're on the other side of the aisle, but they're not actually eroding the um, constitutional structure of our country. With the tr some of the Trump candidates he's endorsed, they, of course, go in the other direction and they are will they're willing to entertain um, just uh, crazy conspiracy theories and and talk about um, the need for strong, strongman rule. Um, and that is, I think, the, the fight that's happening within the Republican Party today. Now, I will say when I analyze it, I'm not very hopeful. And I do see Trump being the, continuing to be, as Jerry Baker said in that column, Richard, the central figure in the Republican Party. However, we just we don't know what that will look like. I mean, Trump is also changeable, as you may have noticed. And if he sees if he sees that his candidates are losing after they stake everything on 2020, he may actually change a little bit. He may downplay the 2020 stuff and think more about the 2024 stuff if he's serious about running. We just don't know. You know, as Trump likes to say, we'll see. And he says that because he only lives in the next five minutes. He, he's only thinking about what happens in his immediate future. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. We're speaking with Matthew Continetti. More coming up in a moment. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why do we have two political parties in America? Is this inevitable? In the future, will we necessarily have a right and a left? Uh, that's a great question. I would say that we've uh, had a right and a left uh, since the French Revolution, um, since since the late 18th century. Why do we have a two-party system? I think it has to do with the structure of American democracy, um, the winner-take-all um, way in which our elections are conducted. Um, of course, the founders of the United States did not want parties. They feared faction. They thought that a small R republicanism meant that uh, our officials would rise above factional interest and consider the public interest. Uh, clearly, that does not always happen. And that's very hard to achieve. And uh, it wasn't long before we settled into a two-party dynamic. I will say that when I talk about left and right, though, I do think the terrain of the politics has shifted um, in recent years. And for much of the 20th century, the argument really was over state power. The American right viewed the incipient welfare state, the growing welfare state throughout the 20th century as um, a form of socialism, what they would call creeping socialism. And so they fought the welfare state because they thought it was um, an antagonistic toward constitutional government and kind of a, a slippery slope toward communist uh, totalitarianism. When I look at politics today, and I think we see this in the French election, the role of the state is not as central to the political discussion. Uh, it's different. It's about um, national identity, about um, immigration, about state sovereignty. Um, and so the way that the right and the left will configure to have that debate, I think is still taking shape. The, the uh, Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen right is not the Ronald Reagan, Nicolas Sarkozy or, or um, yeah. Margaret Thatcher. Or Margaret Thatcher, right, exactly. Yeah, to use the, 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 the British context, so, yes. Which, which I often so, do. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny. It's weird that for most of my story, for much of the 20th century, the, the links between the American right and the English right, the British right, were very important, right? Reagan and Thatcher existing in this kind of um, symbiosis. And yet when you look at the American right today, it seems like a large portion of it isn't taking its cues from England as much as it's taking its cues from continental Europe uh, and the more statist conservatism, the more statist right, rather, that's always been there. That's a shift. And I think it's also an unhealthy one for, for the American right. 
just a few days ago, voters in France, by a big majority, gave the centrist Emmanuel Macron a decisive win over Le Pen. And I think a lot of moderate conservatives and certainly all liberals breathed a, a, a sigh of relief over over that. Uh, Le Pen was, you know, closely associated with Putin and other unsavory positions. But there's something else going on in Europe that you might have heard. I think it, it's come up on this podcast a few times, which is extraordinary events in Ukraine and the pretty heartening response in the U.S. You know, we we think our two parties and our and liberals and conservatives are so divided, but the attitudes towards how we should respond to Putin's aggression in Ukraine are pretty united. And so it's interesting that the, the forces on the right who had been uh, very sympathetic to Putin prior to the invasion uh, went silent. There are figures like, say, J.D. Vance, who is running for the uh, Senate in Ohio, for the Republican nomination in Ohio, who continues to say that Ukraine is not an interest of the United States. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see if he's able to squeak out a, a victory after Donald Trump has endorsed him, by the way. Talk about another tension within the right between authoritarianism, support for strongmen, and support for democracy. I mean, to, to what extent is populism a threat to the conservative ideals of of liberty and freedom and, and strong support for democracy? So populism, uh, you, it can be many things, just like nationalism. I've tracked some moments where populism kind of gives in to uh, the temptations that always lie before it. And those, I would say, are uh, scapegoating. Um, I would say another temptation is conspiracy theory. Um, another is a desire for, for, the, for the majority or for the perceived majority to have its will established immediately without constitutional procedures and checks. And that sometimes leads populists to embrace demagogues who uh, represent kind of uh, the, the, the strong man who is going to impose the will of the majority no matter what um, impediments might, might lie in his way. But however, there are ways in which populism can be, uh, I think, channeled for uh, more um, forward, future-oriented, forward-looking, um, hopeful ends. And so in my book, I talk about Ronald Reagan as a political figure who I believe was a populist, uh, but who also didn't scapegoat groups of people. He talked about big government, right? Um, who also uh, never got into conspiracy theories he was always saying our best days are ahead. And he had a concrete policy agenda that was expansive. So it, it's, it's up for grabs what form populism takes. And so much depends on the leaders who are there uh, to embody and to um, direct these populist energies and what they do. Uh, and um, I'd say that uh, leadership has been lacking in the United States for, for quite some time. You say that the left has, has reduced 
the vast movement that is conservatism uh, to nothing much more than an expression of prejudice, uh, such as sexism, racism, homophobia, and transphobia. Uh, But to what extent is there some truth in that criticism? Talk for a moment about about the dark side of of conservatism, of of the right. Despite this dark side existing, and I make continued reference to it uh, in my book, much to the chagrin of many on the right, I, I resist this temptation to simply pathologize conservatism because I don't think it explains why the American right has been so successful. When you pathologize conservatism, you don't see what is actually driving these election results. You end up, you know, just blaming it on, you know, what Barack Obama said infamously in 2008, the bitter clingers. When the truth is, when you look at the Republican Party's rise at the end of the 1960s, and and then continuing through the rise of Reagan in the end of the 1970s, you see there were real issues driving that change, driving that turn to the Republican Party. Primarily, the breakdown of the Democratic coalition over the issue of Vietnam. Second, secondly, stagflation. And I think this is highly relevant today uh, with the return of inflation. People hate inflation. They hate it. And it hurts the poor the worst. And this, this, is, this explains more than anything, I think, the Republican victories in the 19, uh, 1970s in particular, right? Stagflation. And third, the rise in violent crime in the United States, beginning in the mid-1960s. People just will eventually re- reject <laughs> the, uh, a governing class that says, don't talk about violent crime. It's simply racist to bring it up. They will, they will vote those people out of office. And so when you look at American politics today, I think it's actually dangerous for the left to ascribe everything to these isms. And you have to think about, okay, well, what's the serious strategy that we can take to reduce inflation, to reduce violent crime, which has returned, murders, murders are, are up. Um, how do we do that? And, and in order to address those concerns before uh, the, the public just um, lapses into or turns to a, another populist revolt. And, and are those important reasons why, as of now, it sure looks like in November... Republicans are going to score big gains in congressional elections. Yes, I, 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 I truly agree with that. And I'd add a, another issue, um, which would be education, and that I think the pandemic and the school closures, um, one, alienated many parents from the Democratic coalition, and, and two, provided this moment of radical transparency where parents could look into what was being taught in the schools. And so this this gave rise to the issue of uh, curricula and 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 pedagogy uh, that is also driving I think a lot of parents to revolt against the Democratic Party. So at this moment, yes, I think you're right. I think things look very good for the Republicans, but I would just caution: I don't think they have the Republicans have any idea what to do if they're if they're put into power next year. I have no idea. Here on How Do We Fix It, we try to look optimistically for, for solutions, for common ground. Uh, so to wrap up, if you could put your hand on the tiller of the conservative movement and the Republican Party, where do you think it should go that would be a benefit to more than just partisans? 
Well, I, I think the important thing for the American right to understand is that American conservatism has to be American. The adjective has to do most of the work. And American conservatism has always placed a very high value on freedom, which makes sense because it's coming out of the American political tradition where liberty is very important. American conservatism has also looked to the American founding as the uh, moment, uh, uh, the origin point of the institutions which American conservatism seeks to defend. European conservatism was born in defense of the monarchy, in defense of the established church, in defense of the uh, aristocracy, right? America has no king, it has no established church, and we don't have lords and ladies. We don't have a titled nobility. So what does American conservative thought defend? It defends the founding, it defends the constitution, the declaration, the federalist papers, that tradition of thought that wants to maximize individual liberty to the degree possible considering public order, right? And balance liberty, equality, order, all of these things held in balance through our constitution. An American conservatism that abandoned that um, would, would uh, not be an American conservatism I could support. And it also would not, I don't think, would be successful uh, because at the end of the day, the American political tradition and the moderation of the American people is still very strong. Thank you, Matthew Continetti. Thank you. Richard, I think it's your turn for the recommendation. Yeah, a comedy this time, Jim. Uh, Standing Up on Netflix. Six episodes following struggling young stand-up comedians who also happen to be friends in Paris. Kind of explores... Uh, what it takes to make it in comedy, but it's it's really mostly a romp. It's a lot of fun. And uh, the person who created Call My Agent, that wonderfully funny French series, uh, Fanny Herrero, is behind this one. It's, it's, it's well worth seeing. It sounds great. My wife and I watched a few episodes of Call My Agent, but after a while, she got tired of the fact that everybody in it was basically a scumbag. It said, how reminded can, how her can to, you walk away from Call My Agent? I cannot believe that. She said it, it, reminded, <laughs> it reminded her too much of the days when I used to cover the Hollywood industry, and I spent a lot of time hanging around with people that I was covering that were, let's just say, less than salubrious. <laughs> okay. Speaking of being highly salubrious, next, our conversation. As a, as a critic of conservatism, I, I get to go first, Jim. Um, and uh, You're the one with your hand I, on the record button. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Uh, I'm really struck by by his desire for conservatives to be optimistic um, and constructive as opposed to tearing down the house, which to a considerable extent is what has happened with the populist movement and, and with Donald Trump. Yeah, I think the lack of a of a broader agenda beyond Trump is, is a real problem. And it was a problem with Trump's presidency because Trump is 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 for Trump 
And as he said, you know, a very short attention span and pathologically narcissistic to a degree that, that actually cripples him in a lot of settings, even though it, it holds a certain appeal to some people. But I do think you, you mentioned about not tearing things down. And I think tearing things down is a, is a bad impulse. But there is an element in conservatism, especially in libertarianism, of wanting to say no to uh, the constant expansion of government, that every problem that emerges needs a federal law and program to address it. And it is an important role for conservatives to say, like, no, not so fast. Let's hold on. Let's make sure we know what we're doing. Let's not rush into implementing big, expensive policies that might backfire and, and be hard to, to remove. On the other hand, uh, it, it is deeply sad that um, w we have this growing problem of immigration, which has uh, been crying out for some sensible solutions uh, that George W. Bush was very much in favor of, and a number of Republicans as well as Democrats, and yet they floundered and failed in Congress. So there are times when reforms are needed and when political gridlock preventing those reforms is is very damaging to to many people i mean for instance the the people who who came as very very young immigrants and who are now stuck uh, in this country and with in with an uncertain future look my heart goes out to these people they're just trying to get a better life but if all of a sudden you legalize millions of people, you're sending a message around the world that if you could just get into the U.S. and hang on for a few years, sooner or later, you, they'll, they'll, they'll give you a green card. But the current compromise in Congress and around the country prevents any kind of compromise from being reached. Uh, I don't accept that inaction is better than doing something about a crisis that harms a lot of people. Well... You know, that's why you're liberal and I'm a conservative. I think the government does too much now. <laughs> and I'm OK with yeah. having I, I mean, Americans have often, even even if even if even if dreamers just sit and and um, that's a bad and, situation. And wait and for a future. It's a terrible situation. But I'm yes. not going to blow up the political system to solve that. We were going to try to keep this short, but here we go. <laughs> but yeah, I know. But, I know. But, let's, let's wrap it up. <laughs> but what I would say is is that that one of the the key things we've learned from history is be careful of impulses for immediate change. Sometimes what we call gridlock it uh, protects us from making decisions too rashly. We'll we'll leave it at that. It's it's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davis, and I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and this show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And as always, and Jim can say this, thanks for listening. Oh, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hey, my name's Weston Womp. I'm the host of Swamp Stories, a podcast presented by Issue One that dives into political reform with a bipartisan lens, exploring the problems facing our democracy and offering solutions. Hear elected officials, activists, and experts from across the political spectrum discuss issues ranging from slush funds in Congress and dark money to gerrymandering and election disinformation, and importantly, how to fix America's broken political system and build a better democracy. Find Swamp Stories wherever you get podcasts or at swampstories.org. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.